right, this week our reading is in Ephesians 3, Ephesians 3, 1 through 10. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it now has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gifts of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for this day where we set aside a little time to think about your wisdom, the wisdom you've revealed to us in in your word. Um, Your word contains the law, but we're not under the penalties of the law because of what we're remembering today, the death of Jesus Christ. So I I pray that we would remember every day that, keep hold that close to our hearts, that you've done what we haven't done. Remember to search for it, not in our own wisdom, but in your wisdom, in your word. I pray that your word every day throughout all the ages would continue to be proclaimed and that your church and your people would bow to it. Amen. I want to speak um, this Easter morning. Again, a time providentially we recognize the Lord has risen each and every Lord's day as Pastor Dan spoke earlier, our faith is in vain as we think of Paul's comments to us. The vanity of our faith of Christ has not been raised. Uh, We gather every Lord's Day to rejoice over the resurrection. We gather because of the reality of the resurrection. We live every day by faith because of the resurrection. But there is one day providentially that we've been given in the church, Catholic, that we recognize Easter and we speak together in harmony and in unison as the church regarding the resurrection. And so I wish this morning, as we think of Easter morning, a time in which we, the church, are given opportunity to speak particularly if we're not through some manner of exposition in a text that lands on resurrection, we're given an opportunity to join the church in speaking together as the church about resurrection. This morning, the part I wish to encourage you with and speak joy and peace and nourishment regarding resurrection is what it means to be in union with Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask you, and I don't typically ask you to do this, but I'm going to ask if you'll just grant it to me this Easter to turn to a few texts with me. As is the nature of what we're looking at will not be from a single text, but a couple of texts. 
And I wish you to turn there so you can see them. Again, because I'm going to speak this morning to encourage our hearts together on what it means to be in union with Jesus Christ. I think of this comment often over the course of the years, not every day and not even monthly, but often. I think of this comment from Calvin. He writes this, I wish to strengthen you with it as we begin our time. Speaking of the gospel and our riches and our inheritance in the realities of the gospel, Calvin says, first, right? So so we're already putting hierarchy on priorities of understanding. What is essential for me as a Christian to grasp? Calvin says, first, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us. Now, I I won't stop again and again and again. I'm wanting to do that. I'll try my best not to. But again, as he thinks, we, we can't peer into the realities of a day gone by and think of them as their own event and moment in time. He says, rather, again, as long as Christ remains outside of us, And we are separated from him. All that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. Therefore, to share with us What he has received from his father, he had to become ours and to dwell within us. I wish you to see this from John 17. So if you would please turn to John 17. There's a handful of verses I wish to read for you that will strengthen you and encourage you is a text that you're probably well familiar with, but serves us once again to look afresh at John 17. And the text is considered to be called the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. I want to read for you beginning in verse 22. It serves our purposes this morning within this text of John 17. Again, to Calvin's point, if all of what Christ has done for salvation remains outside of us. It is of no value to us. We must be in union to him. He must dwell in us. We see this in John 17. As you join with me beginning in verse 22. Notice this is our Lord's praying to the Father. A glorious text. One of, again, it, 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 all of us have certain favorites, I guess. 
texts that really moved us at a, per, uh, a particular point in time in life or still move us each and every time we read them, some more than others, by providence and the working of the Holy Spirit. John 17, is, if we took a list here of raised hands, John 17 is probably well represented in this room. And once again, we're reminded why with such words beginning in verse 22. The glory that you have given me. That this is our Lord praying to the Father. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. And again, you've already read verse 23, but if I bring you back to verse 22, before you read verse 23, you would say to yourself, but how? But, but, but how? The, the, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. And you say, wow, how is that? And he says, I in them. And you in me. That they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me back to Calvin, as he says, therefore to share with us what he himself received from the Father. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And, and these know that you have sent me. I may know to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them. And again, you say, how? And he says, and I in them. It is by union where we experience the riches of salvation. We're in church history right now as a church in our Sunday school programming. This quarter, as we break it up into its headings for four quarters, this quarter has been, as you know, church history. I've been spending time with the children, or the young people, I should call them. They'll take great offense if I call them children. Young people. Um, I have been teaching about Gregory Nazianzus, the bishop of Nazianzus, from the fourth century. And he also shares, as with Calvin, the same thoughts of the vitality of the Christian experience being one of union to Jesus Christ. So he speaks similarly, saying this, quote, For that which he has not assumed, speaking of Jesus our Lord, speaking for that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. But that which is united to him, he has not only healed, but has also saved. The glory and the vitality of our blessings from union 
to Jesus Christ. You see, that's why Calvin says it is first that we understand. It is of the utmost priority that we grasp that it is our vital union, mystical union, our, our, our being wed to the person of Jesus Christ, which brings forth the manifold blessings of salvation into our lives. Now I wish you to see this from Ephesians 1. So if you have a text with you, please turn to the, further on into your New Testament, into the epistles, to arrive at Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 1. Again, it will be our vital union to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is our being wed mystically to his very person, whereby we experience the manifold blessings of salvation of which we always speak. If you're in Ephesians chapter 1, I want to begin in verse 3. Notice as Paul begins to pray and to bless the name of the Father for the next several verses that unfold. Again, another text of which I'm sure you're very familiar. But just notice verse 3, how it begins. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul always looking at it as a work of the Trinity. It is vital to our joy and our orthodoxy that we understand our God to be a triune God. Father, Son, and Spirit. The same of which we've confessed with the early church in the Nicene Creed. As Calvin said, he brings to us what in vital union? What he himself received from whom? His Father. So Paul, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. And I want you to very carefully notice that our blessings, the, the, the place in which we receive this vital union and this nourishment unto all of the blessings which unfold and are unpacked in this text, are in Christ. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Again, lest we move too quickly and we move on to the blessings and, and we rejoice over the blessings of salvation and we think of them as items that we add to our life instead of those blessings we receive by vital union to Jesus Christ. But we think of such spiritual blessings, the, the, the joys of what the New Testament unveils, page after page after page of our joys and our blessings in Christ. They are such as made alive in Christ. Justified in Christ. Sanctified. How? In Christ. Built up. The church built up into Christ. Baptized into Christ. Made members of Jesus Christ. 
crucified, Paul says, with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ. Paul speaks of union often from various angles and particularized blessings of our union to Jesus Christ. But he summarizes such blessings of union in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. You don't need to turn there. I simply will cite it and then read it for you. As he speaks, as we gather to contemplate the reality of resurrection and our share in it, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, you, the church of Jesus Christ, you are in Christ. He goes on to explain it, just making the blessings clear of what it means. Not just be a way we speak we're in Christ. I'm united to Christ. But fail to understand that that is, as Calvin says, of first importance that we grasp what it means to be in him. So Paul to the church, you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness sanctification, and redemption. Again, as we gather then to speak, particularly on this given Sunday of resurrection, we are at once then reminded that Jesus has said, I am the resurrection. I want to look at that just for a few more moments with you, please, if you'll turn then to John chapter 11. I'll only spend a few more minutes here, John 11, that we would grasp the significance of our share in union to Jesus Christ and thereby our sharing and our union to the reality of resurrection. You see, such a declaration by the Lord to say, uh, and and you, you're familiar with this text as well. We, we've even uh, looked at this text together as a, as a, as a communion, as, as a fellowship. We've looked at this text before, may, maybe even two, three different times. You're familiar with this text, but if we could consider it again afresh this morning for such a declaration to say to Mary and to Martha, I am the resurrection, makes clear to all of us that the glory of resurrection that the, the, the potential and the promise held out, as we heard in prayer this morning, the potential, the promise held out, the hope of resurrection, isn't merely its existence as an event. That it's a thing out there. You know, the, the, this, this thing that happened. Or, or this date. Or, or, or that date, whether it be in the first century or in the last day. The hope and the potential and the promise and the glory of resurrection, beloved, is not merely in its existence 
as an event. Again, to be clear, as astounding, as amazing, as miraculous and divine as that is. The glory and the promise of resurrection is a person who is himself the resurrection and the life. It's important that we understand this distinction. Your hope today, beloved, is not in a thing. It's not in a day. It's not in a moment. It's in a person who by his power can make that thing a reality. Notice this important distinction because I don't simply make it my own. Um, It's made here as our Lord makes clear that we must grasp this. For all our hopes for loved ones who have gone on. For our hope that we too, when we go on, is in rising. If Christ has not risen as a person, none of us will rise in some other event called resurrection. Notice how important this distinction is. And and, and, uh, John 11, if you're there, you'll notice it as we begin in verse 23. Uh, Jesus said to her, and and this is uh, the context, you're familiar with Lazarus, the the brother, he he has died. Uh, uh, Mary and Martha are, are upset. That they feel that if Christ were here, this wouldn't have happened, and so on and so forth. But, but we're here, particularly for our purposes, to zero in on the distinction. Where does your hope lie this morning? In an event, in a day, in a moment, or in a person? Notice, uh, that's what's at work here in verse 23. Jesus said to, to Martha here, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And, and so to you this morning, as we think of loved ones who have passed by recently, we've, we've lost people, and we, and we think of them, and, and we will lose more of us, and we will all, if Christ not return, we will all go the way of everyone else. Uh, um, so, so, so we have contemplations about resurrection, all of us do, who are in the Christian faith. Jesus makes clear here, speaking of it, your brother will rise again. This will occur. Notice Martha's response. Martha said to him, I know. I I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. You see, Martha in her response is thinking of resurrection as you contemplate this text very carefully. She is thinking of resurrection in light of Lazarus' passing solely in terms of an event. That's her response reflexively. Now again, it, it's wonderful that you see Martha, Mary, they embrace resurrection as a reality. But nonetheless, they look at it as an event. Exclusively as an event. 
In other words, Martha's response makes clear of what many of us do, of what many were doing then. Though you believe in the idea of resurrection, it is detached or it is unhitched from the person with the power of resurrection. Resurrection stands often in our minds solely as an eschatological event. It will occur. If I took a, a, a poll here, who believes in resurrection? And it's the first thought when you go, the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe in him. Or are you thinking of all of the byproduct that his power is able to do? All the people, all the things, all the things being made new. Or are you thinking of the person who makes all things new? Again, I want you to see this, viewing the resurrection as merely an event must be corrected in our own minds for encouragement, for peace, for joy, for hope. And it needs to be corrected here and now in this very moment unto Martha. No, notice because Jesus' response, he keys in on it and we need to key in on it with him as he teaches us through Martha. We join lock, stride, step with Martha. Your brother will rise. Your children will rise. Your parents will rise. Your friends and your family, they will rise. We know, Lord. We know they'll rise again in the resurrection on that last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life principle. Think of that just for a moment, and maybe you can meditate it on this Lord's Day, this afternoon, over your thoughts on Easter Sunday. But you see, if you contemplate within this text, you notice that receiving Lazarus back from the dead, whether it was that day or it would be some other day in the future, is not at all what's at stake in the exchange between Jesus and Martha. He doesn't quibble over her saying, well, it's going to occur on the last day. And he's like, well, you got to be careful about your days. We're thinking on a different plane. We're focused on items and events. And it takes us away from person. Martha, as well as we, the people of Christ, the body of Christ, this Lord's day must rest her faith upon the person of resurrection. He who has the power over life and death. He is the one who saves. He is the one who has been risen. And he is the one who has the power to raise the dead in the future. Notice within the text that those who resurrect, those who lay hold of the promise and experience it reality, its realities, are those who, where I began with you a few moments ago, these are they who are in vital union to Jesus Christ as a person. I, I want you to ask, just as you walk through the text in our last couple of moments together, I want you to ask yourself, And be encouraged and be refreshed, be invigorated, be nourished in your faith. 
does my faith rest upon the Lord Jesus Christ? And thereby do I receive all that he is. Is my hope this Resurrection Sunday? I gather, I rejoice with the people of God, indeed because of an event, but because of the person who ushered in the event, who is the event himself. I rejoice over Jesus Christ. My hope is squarely in him. Because you notice the text, this is the direction our Lord presses us to consider. Once we move with Martha to be a bit corrected on our, I know, I know, I know, the resurrection, it happens in the last day, I get it, he'll rise that day. Because for Martha, then, it's, it's hope in an event that skips over a person who stands right here and can raise him now. But the, the, the reality of resurrection, I'm talking about a date. I get it. Lazarus will be there. I'll be there. Abraham will be there. We'll all be there. He says, I am here right now. I am the resurrection. You see, then he moves past to help us understand and unpack what that ought to mean for us vitally as we are in union to him. Notice the text, it says, whoever, he follows up to, to Martha. See, see, Martha, whoever, anyone, whoever believes in me. Again, the, the union to be to the person. I'm talking about the last day, and I'm telling you about me. Lay hold of me. And rest upon me. Because whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Do you see how your resurrection is by union to Jesus Christ? Not merely because he pledged a date and a time. Whoever believes in me, it's, it's me, I am the resurrection, I'm the life giver. Though he then die in time, similar to what we have with Lazarus going on right now, Martha, yet shall he live. But, but, but I know it's a resurrection, oh no, it's not because he believes in a thing called resurrection. He believes in me, I am the resurrection. Verse 26, he unpacks further, and to make clear, saying it yet another way for us to grasp, everyone who lives, and this is what is going on, they're believing in me, shall never die. You see, by saying Whoever believes in me, not a thing, not an event, not a day, but in me as the person, Jesus makes clear to Martha, to those who were with her, to us, the church of Jesus Christ, reading it in this very moment, Jesus makes clear that he, beloved, he himself is the source and the substance of life that he offers. 
Eternal life is not enough. It is the person that is everything. Our hope can't be merely in an event. Or the event will pass us by. We experience event because we hope in the person. One author makes this comment, says, quote, faith, and we say this all the time, I say it to myself again and again and again. I trust you say it again and again. We remind one another often. So might I remind you as we work to close. Faith is the instrument. That's it. It's an instrument. Remember, it's critical that you make the distinction in your life. That you're not saved by your faith. You're saved by a person who is himself a savior. Faith is a mere instrument that receives him and comes to rest upon him. Faith is the instrument through which we apprehend Jesus Christ and thereby Apprehend life, forgiveness, righteousness, and resurrection. John the Apostle, we've read from him here, and it's beautiful how he summarizes the Christian faith, just the essence of the gospel in 1 John 5, 11 and 12. I end with you now. I, I know I'm reminded by my, my children that I say I'm working towards my clothes too many times. I know that's a rhetorical problem for me. Because everybody's ready. And then I've got two more pages. But, uh, so I, I try to do better. Uh, John summarizes it beautifully in, in, the, in, in 1 John, in the epistle toward the very back of your Bible, 1 John 5, 11 and 12. You might want to look at it some other time. It's a wonderful text right here as we conclude. It's beautiful. It is what we, the church of Jesus Christ, come together to confess. It's our hope. John, writing to the church, makes this wonderful Catholic statement, meaning the universal statement for the church. He says it this way, quote, and this is the testimony, right? Just how he starts, right? It, it, this is the testimony. It's not my testimony. It's not your testimony. It is the testimony for the church, that God gave us eternal life. This is the testimony. Not mine, not yours. Ours. As we gather under his name. Gathering in his power. To bless and glorify and exalt him. The son of God. This is the testimony. That God gave us eternal life. And this life 
is in his son. Not for some people, not for a few of us, for all of us. This life is in his son. Whoever then, the impact of this statement, whoever then, just to be clear, not my testimony, not your testimony, is the testimony of the church that God gave us eternal life and that this life is in his son. Therefore, whoever has not the son does not have the life. Whoever has the Son has life. You see? Because it's a thing. Because it's a person. God gave it to us. But he gave it to us in the Son. Paul calls this in Colossians 1 the most profound mystery of the gospel. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for Lord's Day. Whether it's a particularized time we gather to praise you, to worship you, to hear from you about resurrection in particular, or we gather as your pilgrims on every Lord's Day to believe resurrection, to rest in resurrection, to be nourished upon resurrection in the reality and face of Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection, who is our King of kings, who is our Lord of lords, who gives us life, who calls into the darkness and creates light, who gives life to things that were dead. We praise you for the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And we praise you for your Holy Spirit, whereby in the hearing of the gospel, faith is given. And we are thereby moved by that power to repentance and the person of the Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in whom the Father has given us eternal life. We praise you for our faith. We praise you for your word that we can read and we can study and we can preach and we can share that gives nourishment to the life that you have created within us as your people. Oh God, add a blessing to your word. Mature us by what we've heard today. Nourish us by what we've heard today. Correct us where we're wrong. Set our priorities right. Put our gaze back upon its true object. The Son of God. The Lord Jesus Christ. We ask all of these things in his name alone. Amen. You remain.